I'm Randy, the pastor half of the podcast, and my friend Kyle is a philosopher. This podcast hosts conversations at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and spirituality. We also invite experts to join us, making public a space that we've often enjoyed off-air around the proverbial table with a good drink in the back corner of a dark pub. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. Today we're talking with Carrie Latticer, who is the head of a new community of churches called the Post-Evangelical Collective. Randy's going to tell you more about that in a minute. Um, But this is a really interesting conversation, and it's going to be a conversation that really hits home for a lot of our listeners who are finding themselves in a place having deconstructed from evangelicalism, maybe Mm -hmm. even abusive structures of evangelicalism, and are wondering, but they, they want to hold on to some kind of religious faith. Maybe they're long again for some kind of religious community, but it doesn't exist around them. Mm -hmm. Maybe they looked around and they just haven't found anything that looks right or feels at home. This is this is something you guys are going to want to hear. Yeah, and it's also why I'm so proud to to host spaces where we can feature women's voices within the church because abuse, manipulation, all the all the patriarchy and gross stuff it it, it can almost get to be like a an idea for some of us, especially us men. I'm so grateful that women like Carrie who have that in their past and who have experienced all that have worked their way through it, have experienced healing and redemption and can actually speak to it pretty pretty honestly mm-hmm. in ways that need to be spoken to and in, way, in ways that people like us need to listen to. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we should say a little bit before the interview about what the Post-Evangelical Collective is and what your role in relation to it has been. Yeah, so... Uh, full disclosure, Carrie's a friend of mine. She's turned into a friend in the last year and a half, I would say. Um, the Post-Evangelical Collective is this um, new affiliation of churches who have exited out of the evangelical movement and have felt spiritually homeless, ecclesiologically homeless, and have been looking for a group of comrades and friends to journey with together towards Jesus, who still care about the gospel, still care about church, but want to do it in some decolonized ways, maybe some deconstructed ways, maybe some uh, more inclusive ways, to be sure. Carrie is the executive director of the Post-Evangelical Collective. My church is kind of... um, we're in a dating relationship with the Post-Evangelical <laughs> Collective. We've been introduced to them. We enjoy them. We've gone to gatherings. Um, and we're about almost ready as leaders to say, yeah, I think we want to be a Post-Evangelical Collective church. But I have gone faster. The elders at our church have given me permission. Um, I've been invited to be the the regional director for like Chicago, Great Lakes region for the PEC. And so I'm just beginning my role in that. Um, if you're a church in the upper Midwest, Great Lakes region, and you're interested in this, hit me up, s- send me an email. So I'm going a little bit faster and further than our churches. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So I'm really excited to share Carrie with our listeners and share the PEC and this idea of this new collective, this new movement of people coming out of the evangelical spaces, wanting something more centered around Jesus, centered around the church. If you're new to this podcast, we taste 
an alcoholic beverage as part of every episode. It's a little unique, but we do that to feel like we are actually in a bar and having set in the table for some amazing conversations. We have a friend of the podcast who has been on with us for several tastings now, and this is the third one we're doing, who generously gave us amazing whiskey to sample. And uh, it's really fun, Tim, to do these tastings with you. Welcome back. Thanks. I usually say, what are we drinking? But this is a blind tasting today. Let's yep. start sniffing and tasting, huh? That sounds really creepy. <laughs> I enjoy tricking these guys. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, no, this is different. This is very different. It's got that, like... It's like a medicinal... Yep. Um, More alcohol Cough flavor. syrup cherry mm -hmm, mm -hmm. flavor. And very, like, for me, it's very fruity and floral, but again, a little hint of oak behind all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yep. I'm always so freaked out doing blind tastings because yeah. I feel like I'm going to make an ass <laughs> out of myself. Yeah. yeah, I would say we, we've been drinking bourbon on our channel for three years now and we get it wrong so much. Like even some of the biggest names, that's why they recommend doing blind tastings mm. is because what you think is your favorite won't yeah. be your favorite. Yeah. What yeah. you think you know, you don't. So for this one, I don't like the nose very much at all. It's got kind of like a very medical medicinal and alcohol flavor to it yeah, it's kind of astringent but it shows up on your palate and it yeah. doesn't taste at all like that <clears throat> i like the body a lot it's higher proof i think than the ones we've had before i would guess and it's much more viscous look at the legs on it it's got legs yeah, but which it translates it to a great mouthfeel yeah it does yes. i felt like it has the least amount of mouthfeel of what we've tasted oh really mm -hmm. no that was the last one hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. For those of you who don't know, we are doing several tastings in a row. It's a good night with a passion <laughs> plus for walking to a bar. Joined by Tim. Yeah, this one I get a lot of fruity notes that I haven't gotten uh, before. And then it's yeah. still really oaky, you can tell, yeah. because on the, the finish, it starts to like kind of dry your mouth out a little mm, bit, yeah. which is from all the tannins from the, yes. the oak. Cool. I'm totally getting that. Yeah. This is wheat. Matt, I, I don't oh, so. interesting. What What do you think? It does I'm, have I'm a kind to... of grainy quality that I associate with weeded bourbons. Weeded bourbons just have like a um, like a beer flavor to me almost. Yeah, I know. This yeah. doesn't have that for me. Hmm. This is very precise for me. Like the first first one we tasted was just like everywhere in your palate is tingling and tasting. The second one was a little bit more honed in, but still like comple complex. This one does. I would I want to say the least amount as far as flavor profile but yeah it's got the brightness that tim's talking about it's got the it's almost light to i'm me. gonna the more i, I drink it proof. the more i drink it the more i think it's a rye mm. or or a very high rye bourbon hmm. i might be i'm probably gonna be proved wrong but that's what i'm getting tim what are we drinking drum roll so please. would you believe me if i told you wild turkey 101 all right i would believe you i guess yes nice. <laughs> from japan from and Jap it's aged 12 years what? <laughs> So what these distilleries do is they, uh, when bourbon wasn't big in America, they ship things over to Japan. So there's special releases over in Japan. And one of them is Wild Turkey 101, aged 12 years. People have gone crazy for it. You can only get it over there. People have started buying it and shipping it back here because in Japan, what? it's a $50 bottle. Hmm. Here in America, it's $150 a bottle. Whoa. Yeah. So. And it's got no Japanese whiskey in it. No, it's it's solely just fully done in Kentucky from Wild Turkey, but it is a Japanese only, Asian only uh, distribution. Wow, hmm. I like it. 
That's very good. Yeah. It's far better than any wild turkey I've had before. Well, besides mm-hmm. the wild turkey that he sold us. Well, I suppose that uh, that's fair. You sent us a 13-year-old wild turkey that was quite good. Uh, yeah. I yeah. Remember that one. Mm-hmm. I would take that one. But this is delicious and very, I think, subtle, I think. It is, yeah, yeah but also approachable. So yeah. do you happen to know what the mash bill is? Uh, it should. It's just the regular wild turkey mash bill for nothing, wild nothing turkey special. 101. Interesting. And I, I don't know that off the top of my head. One more time, Tim. What are we? What were we drinking? We're drinking Wild Turkey 101, aged 12 years, Japanese. Cheers. Thank you, Tim. Carrie Latticer, thank you so much for joining us on A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Yes. Carrie, for our listeners who don't know exactly who you are, could you just tell us who you are, what you do, where you are, all the goods? Sure. I'm Carrie Latticer. I'm coming at you from Raleigh, North Carolina. My family and I just relocated here um, over the summer from Chicagoland. I have been a pastor, like vocationally, for the last 18 years or so, full time in the church. And now am um, the executive director, but really like co cultivator of this thing called the Post Evangelical Collective. And that's my full time job. And I get to do it alongside some incredible people. Yeah, you do. So I told everyone in the introduction that we're friends and, you know, I've been introduced to you because of the Post-Evangelical Collective. But I want to begin in the beginning of your journey as far as your church journey, your ministry journey. You said 18 years. Well, I don't know if Willow Creek is the beginning, but let's begin at Willow Creek in in the belly of the beast, if you don't mind. What's your journey been like leading and pastoring in the evangelical church, your time in Willow Creek, all of the things um, before you were post-evangelical, what was your world like? Yeah, I didn't know what Willow Creek was when I went to interview there. Um, I was married to a man who was going to do an internship and seminary there. And so he had, um, this is a really crass thing. Am I allowed to be crass on this? <laughs> yeah, we yes. love crassness. People who worked at Willow used to talk about something they called the Willow Woody. Like people that got really excited <laughs> about Willow Creek. The Willow Woody. Wait, 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 wait. What does it mean? They just got really excited about this. Was like, <laughs> you, you can't this hear was it. Like, flagship evangelical church in North America, and it has shaped the church all over the world. Yes. So it's like a, people got really excited about Willow. I I had like not, I had grown up in and out of the church. I found my way back to God at a Southern Baptist, like pretty conservative church in Florida. I really quickly kind of turned my life in a different, like reoriented my life in a different direction. I married a guy who worked there. He was a youth pastor. He wanted to be a pastor. And so he had known of Willow Creek forever. I was brand new to this like subculture, super conservative church there. And then we went to Willow Creek, which let women lead and called women pastors and had women elders. And I would even say had like a more expansive view of the gospel than the one that I was given at that like conservative Southern Baptist church. And so I went to Willow and uh, really it was for this man I was married to, to go to seminary and become a pastor. And I, in the interview process for that, got a job there and started working in student ministry. I did high school ministry for a while and then adult ministry. And I spent uh, like over 12 years working and leading ministries at Willow Creek. So 12 years, no Willow Woody, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
so you work for probably I think you're right one of one of if not the most prominent evangelical churches in the country. When did you begin to know that you might not be able to continue in the evangelical tradition? What was that journey like for you, Carrie? Yeah. Um, I think I want to say like, I'm really grateful for the ways that I was. I think I'm really grateful for the ways that I was formed there. There were some things about my experience at Willow that really expanded my understanding of the gospel, like towards an orientation towards justice and maybe even a nod towards mutuality. There were some things that expanded about my understanding of the gospel, but I also had like a really painful experience of injustice there. And so while I was formed in some significant ways, I um, just like through discernment decided I needed to speak up about this injustice with the leader who was leading the church and really was like gutted in that process. The best way I could describe it is that how that organization walked with me revealed that they didn't really believe the things that they espoused because they violated everything that they said they believed by how they treated me through that. And so that was like a, like a demolishing of this paradigm, this faith paradigm that I had that just didn't hold up anymore after my experience of the people leading it. So that was the end of evangelicalism, I guess, for me. Yeah. How did you at the time understand what evangelicalism was? Like when when you were experiencing the demolishing, what was the thing that you were experiencing being demolished? Does that make sense? Was it Willow Creek and that's just all I know about evangelicalism or was it something bigger than that? This is a really interesting question that I'm even still sort of wrestling through. Like it was a paradigm that I was in, but I, I still left really compelled by the person of Jesus. And so I wanted to figure out, could I... Could I define what that means or figure out what it means to follow Jesus out when this whole thing fell apart? And I think in that, what I would say today that I didn't know at the time or couldn't articulate at the time is that I do, I think that's a whole, um, it's a value proposition of what the gospel even is. That's a flimsy house of cards and is Mm. not the good news of the gospel. Like, it's more than Willow Creek, but it's this like paradigm of faith and this value proposition about what it means to be a Christian, like the whole thing. Um, there's a couple threads that you can pull on and the whole thing unravels. So now I would say evangelicalism is like a, a, para, a faith paradigm. Mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? It's, it's getting closer. So you use the phrase value proposition, which I only hear in corporate okay. context, <laughs> which might tell it's me like something about the, the Willow line, Creek uh, what context. I, yeah. Um, yeah. So how would you define the value proposition of evangelicalism then? The the thing that you pull out and it all crumbles. And what, what do you have to replace it with? <laughs> that can be two answers if you want. I think that, well, it's probably a couple because the threads could be lots of different things. But I think the value proposition is this sort of fear-based, shame-oriented, hell-avoidance strategy that mm. really separates what happens here and now. It's like, life insurance to go to heaven later. And here's a list of things you got to do to kind of get in and hold on to that. It's a, it's just, it's a hell avoidance, shame-based sort of fear oriented way of offering people salvation. That's mm-hmm. how I would define what that one was. Yeah. So when you- The value envi- proposition part, I guess. It's like a spiritual prosperity gospel. If you mm. do this and this and this, this yeah. is what will happen. Which is funny because a lot of those people would totally disavow the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But they just have a different version of it maybe. Yeah. I came out of the prosperity gospel, so that hits home for sure. Okay. Um, that was, That's a whole other story. So 
you're, you're head of an organization called the Post Evangelical Collective. I'm going to have more questions about that later. But seems like you would need a pretty clear idea of what the evangelical part of that means to be post it. <laughs> um, so, so what is different about what the collective is doing that is, yeah. you know, a different value proposition, as you would say? Yeah, I guess the value proposition part is what I wanted to say is at the core, like kind of how I would distill down evangelicalism. It's one of the differences. What's interesting is like historically and culturally, it's a subculture in North America, evangelicalism is. It's a it's a become a voting party, become a like a force in a lot of ways. I mean, we could unpack what evangelicalism is. But I think you're inviting me to talk more about what post-evangelicalism yes, yes. is. But I want to say it's bigger than just that value proposition, mm-hmm. right? Like evangelicalism as a subculture that's held significant power and influence in our country and is held together by particular doctrinal statements. And like, we could talk about what that is. I think what's happening in the post-evangelical space is, I guess I would say, I think in the last seven or eight years, specifically, there's been like a revealing of what that whole system was of evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And it's a group of people that are trying to discern together, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What is the good news of the gospel? What is the potential of the redemptive community, the beloved community? What is the church supposed to be? I think it's people that are reimagining a different ethic or a different value proposition, if you will, that is distinctly not what that one was. I think, and and so post-evangelical collective may not be our name forever, but right now it describes what we're saying we are outside of, we want to move beyond. And many people in this space, not all, were formed by evangelicalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So speaking of being formed by evangelicalism, um, Kyle jumped ahead a little bit, but that's okay. But I want to flesh out a little bit some more of that time at Willow Creek, because it was not just like you getting disillusioned with evangelicalism. Some real stuff went down, right? Um, Sure. You start out by saying... Willow is a church is an evangelical church that affirms women in leadership and what calls women pastors, right? And yeah. I remember, I don't know how long ago it was. You probably know because um, you were probably on staff when Bill said his successors would be male and female co lead pastors, right? I remember being like, "Damn, way to be Bill Hybels. That's cool," you know. Yeah, yeah. Comes across as this champion of women, mm-hmm. um, but now we all know that. That's not exactly the case. There was other things going on. Can you describe it all, Carrie, with without like re-traumatizing, without going sure. into details that you're uncomfortable with? Just what was that season like, and what tell us about that as much or as little as you want to? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm willing to talk about any of that. I think mm-hmm. what's so what's so fascinating to me is that we could say like Bill appeared to do all of this stuff for women. They actually did. Like the reason that there are women in the pulpit, the reason that there are like it was this was a paradigm changing, like very progressive thing that he did, which when you start to look at like the power dynamics of it, then he also he had that favor. Right. Like Mm -hmm. I think that's part of what kept women silent for so long because of the risk if they spoke up. And there was, again, almost a value proposition of like, but look at all the good he's doing. I mean, that's what people said over and over and over again, even outside of just the good he's doing for women. It's like, but look at all the good Willow did. And they want to write off all the harm. Like, that's okay, because look at the good that it accomplished. So I think 
I think that power, because he knew he was so, such a forerunner in this, is a part of what held this very like fractured thing together for so long because women didn't speak up because they knew it would set women back if they did. Hmm. Explain that. Yeah, I guess when there's like a, it's not equitable and somebody is advocating for you, but also trying to benefit. Like, I, I don't know when that exactly started for him, mm-hmm. but at some point, it was power that he was able to wield. And he put women in very vulnerable positions, women who were not allowed to say, I mean, my job was reporting to him, part of the onboarding to report to Bill Hybels. And I had not, he had not led a ministry directly for more than 30 years. And then he decided he wanted to be my boss and oversee the area that of ministry that I led. And part of the onboarding tour for Bill is that you do not tell Bill no. Like that's explicit so- in the onboarding? Like from HR, the HR director told people, you don't tell Bill no. And it's like, when you got an email from Bill, you respond, right? Like there's all of this, um, there's all of these dynamics that for many, many, many years leading up to this. And this is after reports had been made that that was still part. And that was to men and women. That wasn't just to women, don't tell Bill no. But it was just like, in general, he had such a an influence and a force and a power about all these ways that they were, Willow was doing good or it was a big deal. But when you talk about the dynamics of women specifically, um, and I think some of the women that spoke up have said they have really had to wrestle with the fact that they benefited, right, from Bill being this forerunner on this conversation mm-hmm. and then also spoke up and, you know, some would say hurt him, um, but spoke up and revealed some of the realities that he would prefer stayed hidden and that came at a cost to him. And so even that, what that does to you psychologically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the loyalty to break, you know, of speaking up at all, um, it was a lot for me to process on my end to even decide to say something. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what that was going to lead to when I did. Yeah. Were you the first? No. Um, several... No, like years before I said anything, apparently there was a whole thing. Uh, Women had spoken up. There had been reports. There had been investigations. Mm -hmm. The same investigator that they hired to investigate my claims who flew on a private plane to my city and threatened me. Hmm. Literally. Uh, Literally. I said, um, you are either lying or like and making this up or being dramatic some people in the executive team said that I was being paid to make up these stories, like that John and Nancy Orberg were paying me to make mm-hmm. up these stories or that Nancy Beach offered to make my career if I spoke up. I mean, like, you guys, I had a friend in the last couple of years reach out and say that the Heibel's family paid him to create blogs and fake Twitter accounts to put stories out defending Bill and calling out John Orberg and other people. So this is a friend of mine who came to me and apologized for receiving money from the Highwolds family for doing that. Hmm. Like the layers of cover up mm-hmm. and malicious calculated self-protection. And that's what I would say. One of the systems that runs evangelicalism is patriarchy, which is a self-perpetuating mm-hmm. self-protecting system. So would you describe Willow Creek, despite its appearances, as patriarchal? Certainly. And more progressive than other church spaces. So when you find yourself in the undertow of a system, you learn to take breadcrumbs and celebrate breadcrumbs because you are hungry at the other tables. 
Mm-hmm. So you show up there and it's like, oh, but I get to I get to be in the room at this meeting or I get yeah, to have mm-hmm. a seat at the table at this meeting. Or right. so it's like it was progressive patriarchy. Right. Syrophoenician, Syrophoenician woman patriarchy. Yeah. So do you think the theology was just a lie? Um I don't know because the theology went bigger and further than just women. Like mm-hmm. I this is the thing that's so nuanced and complex about stuff like this is Willow Creek introduced me to an organization called Telos, which is a peacemaking organization engaged in the Middle East, pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, pro-peace, exists to help us reflect on like evangelical, the implications of evangelical theology and what's playing out in the Middle East. I've been a part of that ministry for 12 years. I chaired the board of that organization. Like I have been changed. It was like a second conversion for me to have that experience. And that was a partner at Willow Creek that Willow helped start that was all about justice. And like in a lot of ways, they put their money where their mouth was when it came to justice. And like that was so expansive for me to understand. And I think since then have expanded more, but it was like it was formational. The things that they said they believed and the ways that they embodied those values was formational for me for a long time. So I think it's hard to just like black and white say no. Um, but certainly there were areas that their actions did not match their words. And that's just a real violation of our integrity. And I think the fruit of that is what was borne out in this situation, right? Mm-hmm. The when, when we don't behave the ways that we say we believe. Yeah. There are several recurring themes on our podcast, and probably the main one is intellectual humility. And it comes mm-hmm. up every, talk, every time we talk about evangelicalism. It's probably the primary reason both of us eventually left it um, is because there isn't any. <laughs> or, or there's a, a real yeah. shortage. Very little. Very little actual genuine intellectual humility. Too. So I was going to ask you, was that your experience as well? Because when you're describing Willow Creek, it just sounds like there probably wasn't any at all. Um, but even when you, I think the phrase you used was people didn't speak up because it would set women back if they did. Which I understand in that context, and that's totally valid. But like, in general, it, no, it wouldn't, because this is one church, and it's not that insignificant. Um, so, but it, to 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 be in a place where a claim like that would be not just reasonable but obviously true tells you something about the level of humility in that space. I think what's missing from that piece, though, the intellectual humility. I want to come back to if we can in the um, that part of it within evangelicalism. I think what is hard, like what's worth naming is it did set women back, even the women reporting abuse. Mm-hmm. I sat in a conference in the last three years where someone said, if we let women lead within this denomination that are not married to the pastor, women that are not who are not married to the pastor lead and be on staff, we're going to have situations like what happened at Willow Creek at Merch. Mm-hmm. Like people have not excavated the roots of what happened at Willow and just on the broad scale. I mean, I guess with any evangelicalism, there are less women, like it did disempower women. It set the conversation back many years. I mean, even what happened with the lead pastor, the woman who was supposed to lead, like because of the influence of that church, I do think it's shock shockwaves um, that put women back. I, I heard people in chat rooms saying like, this is what happens when you let women lead or mm. blaming the women even for what happened. Like I, I just, yeah, I don't want to miss that. I do think yeah. that was part of the cost, even for what what played out there mm-hmm. in the way that it did. Yeah, that's fair. So about the intellectual humility thing, what was your further thought about that? 
you guys say that we lack intellectual humility within evangelicalism. Is that right? You guys talk about that. That has been my overwhelming experience. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think what's, I think that's my experience too. And maybe this is broader than Willow because Willow didn't exactly like even elevate intellectual rigor. Like that was just Mm -hmm. not like, if you went to seminary, it was like not a good, like, um, and I Hmm. think that's one of what's interesting about evangelicalism is it's unclear in some spaces what holds it together until you bump up against it. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very true. Yeah. So I just had a conversation with a friend who was just talking about, um, like a big name guy within evangelicalism. I don't know. I don't know how much you guys talk about names, but he was like talking <laughs> about this guy that one time when he was an evangelical pastor, he used to wanted to preach like him, which mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, I didn't know guys get to choose. Like, I didn't know this was a thing that you're like, I want oh, to yeah. preach like this. Guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Who so was this it, is a deconstruction friend who got followed by that guy and was uh-huh. like, I think it was a hate follow. And I was like, what if it was a love follow? What if he follows you? And he's like, man, this dude is free. Like this guy gets the gospel and he gets to live it. And he is stuck in the system of, cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. like i cannot wrap my head around how inconsistent the hermeneutic is with any evangelicalism and how do these really really smart guys stay in that system of cognitive dissonance when it's like unless there's something like very disconnected in here Hmm. i think that's the only way to live in cognitive dissonance is if you're disconnected from yourself maybe live sort of disassociated or numb or like and I just talked to so many pastors in that system who feel that way, who are like reading Brian, Brian McLaren and like tucking it in their drawer and shutting the off, like mm-hmm. shutting that before they open their office door mm-hmm. for a staff member to come in. Like you're locked in this um, like black and white, cut and dry, no nuance system. And I think at some point you realize that doesn't apply to actual life or ministry or the text. And then if you stay in it, you have to have some form of cognitive dissonance to stay in it. Does that, do you, what are your thoughts on that? It's been, yeah, that's been my experience as well. Although for every person I know that I think that probably is locked in some cognitive dissonance, there are two or three others who seem to really be true believers. And there doesn't seem to in be- In that system? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There don't doesn't seem to be any dissonance at all. Maybe they're just better at hiding it. I don't know. Um, yeah. But you can, I mean, self-deception can go all the way down. <laughs> all you got to do is take a look at Christian Twitter and you'll find a bunch of- yeah. yeah. But, you know, you can only tell so much about a person from Twitter, but I've lived with people who I think, mm-hmm. you know, literally lived under the same roof with people who to this day are all the way down convinced and practicing it. And it is, con- it's a consist totally coherent, consistent system for them. Uh, and, and almost without not- exception, it, it works to their benefit. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you're a woman, it doesn't work to your benefit. And I know a lot of women in that position too. So, yeah, I think there are many for whom there is dissonance. And honestly, those people are a big part of the reason we do this podcast because I want them to secretly listen to it and experience some some yeah. liberation. But the ones who I'm thinking of definitely don't listen to this podcast and never will. And uh, yeah, yeah, because we've all gone down like gone off the deep end and down the slippery slope and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. If there's enough of a payoff or even um, just too high of a cost, um, you can stay in it for your whole life, oh. as I'm sure yeah. you know. So, Carrie, we have gone through our own deconstruction and our own just spiritual evolution, I prefer to call it in some ways. But we're white dudes who have never had anything taken from us and like never really like our faith didn't cost us something in in general. We had a very privileged kind of deconstruction is what I'm trying to say. You represent a whole bunch of people who don't have that same experience with within evangelicalism 
and with um, this idea of a faith evolution or deconstructing your faith and, and reconstructing it. So can you just take us inside? What is What was that deconstruction journey like when also you mix in abuse, manipulation, disillusionment, you know, lies, uh, all the things that you went through? How, how does that journey feel, look? How's it shaped? Yeah. I mean, I guess it was like, I would be just really candid. It was one of the darkest seasons of my life. You know, like Mm -hmm. you could use dark night of the soul or whatever metaphor you want to use. It was like wandering in the desert for years is what it felt like. That's the best metaphor I've come to. Um, It was lonely. I mean, mine came with such relational loss. Like Mm -hmm. the people I had done ministry with for 12 years, lived in community with, like my kid wore the hand-me-downs from the HR director's kids the woman who was in the room when my kids were born, like just the the relational loss was tremendous. And I know people get kicked out of faith communities for a lot of different reasons. And I think it's really hard to understate the loss. For me, there was, you know, emotional loss and spiritual loss because I sort of saw through this flimsy system, like it didn't hold up the thing I would have gone to for comfort in a hard thing didn't hold up anymore. It wasn't a durable hope or faith for me anymore. Um, there was financial loss. You know, there was like credibility and opportunity loss. Um, I don't like want to pretend I had some big reputation, but the reputation I had was like drug through the mud. I actually had a really good friend and former colleague call and say, Carrie, just pull out of this. They're not going to stop dragging your name through the mud. Like just pull out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? If you would have spoken up, I wouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. You saw things you saw these exact same experiences that I'm reporting and you didn't say anything. And maybe if you would have, I wouldn't have to, but if I don't, somebody else will. Hmm. And I had like worked that out. Even I had to, to speak up. I had no idea what speaking up was going to cost me like nothing. I was oblivious. I was so naive to that. And actually after talking to that buddy on the phone, like I got off the phone and I couldn't sleep. I was like wrestling with God. And I really, really feel like I sensed like a very clear experience with God where God was like, you can pull out of this. Like you don't have to do this and I'm going to love you no matter what. Mm-hmm. And if you do stay in it, like I'm going to use every bit of this, like none of it will go to waste. Mm-hmm. And I don't really still don't know what I think about God's sovereignty, but I know I th- I don't think God is a puppet master up there, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think God causes hard to happen, but I think God could use any hard in our lives and bring redemptive purposes from them. And so that was my experience over time, the reconstruction, reconstruction part, but the deconstruction was very dark, very lonely. I mean, there were days at the beginning, I couldn't get out of bed. My sisters like took turns flying in town to be with me because mm-hmm. I was like, I couldn't function. It was just, it was devastating to that kind of level. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk deconstruction, it's usually around doctrines we don't like, ways of thinking about God, ideas. Yeah, super convenient. You're going through this visceral, painful gut punch of a journey. Um, how did how did that feel? Like, was were you questioning everything? Christianity itself? Were you questioning uh, all church? Like, tell us tell us how. Yeah. 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 I mean, everything, like, and so much of that was what drove my life. Like my, just 
my own kind of get pep in my step, you know, like get out of bed and go to work. It like, that was a part of my paradigm for how I lived. And it was a part of my work and it was part of my family. I was married to an evangelical pastor and like, it was just, I, I had to wrestle with all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the thread of whatever launches that process for people is different, but I think it actually impacts sort of every area of life. Like in the last couple of years, I've had to reevaluate how I think about parenting mm-hmm. because what was given to me in the early years when my kids were little, I have a lot of regrets about. And it was like this very obedience-based model of parenting. So it was very dark. And I feel like everything that sort of held my world together had been demolished. And so I sat there in the midst of like these very shattered pieces. And for me, felt very compelled still by the person and life and ministry of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And like wanted to figure out, is there anything here worth redeeming and rebuilding with. Yeah. Um, but I had to sit in the the mess of it for a while and not just like yep. find something more convenient to hold on to and move on, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for bringing us into those dark spaces. <clears throat> um, so tell us then, Carrie, about how you went from needing siblings to fly in to care for you and having everything undone and your world collapsing on you to then what did reconstruction look like for you? What has, what made your faith come alive again? What gave you hope for the church? Why are you still working in and for the church? Yeah. I don't know if I recommend this and I realize this is actually really like privileged as well, but I, I went to seminary to like reconstruct. That was a part <laughs> of my journey. Okay. Um, I'm jumping a little bit here. Like I, I went through this very dark season and, I'm grateful I had a lot of resources, therapy and counseling and sisters and family. And I, like I said, I was still very compelled by the person of Jesus. And so I started reading, you know, some books on my own, like some Rachel Held Evans and some Willie Jennings. And I am indigenous, like First Nations. So I started exploring a little bit of like indigenous theology or indigenous spirituality. I started really wrestling with like, I think I, I got to a place that I got mad about how the model of faith that I left and that was shattered had so co-opted the ways of Jesus. And then like wanted to dig my heels in and be like, but because it was like so clear to me, that is not the church. Like we have been sold a bill of goods. That is not the church, that system, that paradigm, that gospel, that value proposition for the gospel, like all the things that we have named. And so I really just had this passion to like, imagine then what is it if that's not what it is? And that's not the way of Jesus. What is it? And Decided to go to seminary in the midst of, I mean, I started getting asked to teach at things, which was like wild. And I felt like, okay, if I go to seminary, I might have a little bit more competence to know what I'm pulling from and like assurance of what I'm teaching. It would take me less time to prep for what I'm teaching. There's not a lot of paths out there that like teach women how to teach or prep or, you know, so it was like part convenience part. I don't even know if I can get on a stage and talk about these things when I don't quite know what I believe about them, I'm not going to say stuff I don't believe. So I I went to seminary to like figure some of that out. And that was a part of my reconstruction journey. And we uh, exposed me to a lot of things. I was just telling a friend, well, it was a good place to work out what reconstruction looks like. Mm -hmm. And before Kyle jumps in, this, this is helpful because I know your story a bit and I've heard you tell stories. I've heard you tell stories about what it's like to be a woman in seminary, even how you were treated by certain 
professors who we will not mention, but just do you have a story or two? Because I know that there's so many women listening to this episode and who are just deeply identifying. And um, I, what was that experience of being a woman in seminary like? Yeah, I'm like laughing answering your question because I I didn't know what I was like stepping into by being like, I'm not, I'm not sure. Have you thought about that like this? <laughs> like throwing something out like that. I, I just, I didn't know. I did I really, I didn't know what I was getting into in the midst of speaking about Willow. I didn't know um, in a situation like we have, we have such atrophied imagination and interpretation because it's been done in isolation. And so when you put like women or people of diversity or a queer person or somebody with a different experience or, you know, like, and and I don't mean this harshly towards you guys, but it's been a bunch of like rich, highly educated, straight white guys that have been shaping our theology and our imagination for how to read the Bible and, you know, for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And so I would like speak up and say something. And I just had no idea, like that was a landmine to throw out an idea like that, or to be like, I don't know if either of you are right. And why does that matter? Or um, we, there was a conversation in a class, this is the example I'll share, uh, where the professor had assigned reading from a theologian who has been outed as like a serial abuser, like used his very specific position of power and the ways that he talked about peace as a part of his theology to gain access to and take advantage of women. And in my class, this was assigned reading. I, I was always like really behind and getting ready for class. So I'm like reading at the last minute, you know, before we jump in. And somebody had put a note in the chat, like, who's going to bring this up? Because I'm, I have concerns that we have to read this theologian. And I was like, oh, God, I don't even know what they're talking about. I like caught up real quick. And I was like, thank God they're handling this. And I don't have to say anything. Like, that's that's old days. I don't have to speak up about this. I'm so glad. Like, I'm I'm actually tired of having these conversations mm-hmm. in the evangelical space. And um, the professor just proceeds to, like, sort of publicly shame and mildly berate the woman that brought something up about it. Just, like, kind of like whack-a-mole, like shot her down and then somebody else spoke up and said something. And then he said something like sort of exerting his influence and some force and like kind of undermining what she said and like smacked her down. And this happens like five or six times. Every woman in the class has spoken up and then like gotten red and then started crying and then stopped talking. And I was like, what is happening? And I leaned in and just started asking questions like, wait, it's, it sounds like you think that the stories of these women are not credible. Are you thinking this is like an issue of, um, consent or like, what's the breakdown? And I literally was trying to like lean in and translate something that was happening in the room. And I just, I got chewed up for it. And I got like, I kind of went toe to toe with the guy, like not even on purpose, just trying to name. So there were lots of just hard things that you've stepped into as a woman, just by trying to have an opinion or a perspective, or like in this case, seeing something really differently than he had seen it because he had never had an experience of like being on the underside of power or being in a vulnerable position where somebody could take advantage of you. So, and, but that wasn't always the reaction. Sometimes guys were like, wait, say more and lean in, you know, like my brothers in seminary and my fellow classmates, but there were certainly experiences like that where like the experience of a woman was not welcomed to be a part of the discussion. And sometimes it like sucked the air out of the discussion mm-hmm. because the perspective was so different or mm-hmm. undermining of what they were trying to teach or unpack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's remarkable that you found the resources for reconstruction despite all that in in that space. Amen. 
Let me tell you an amazing story too, though, because it's not all been bad. Mm. I think, um, gosh, we're wired to want to pull from the hard or the bad experiences that have shaped us. Yes. And there were some of those that were difficult. I had amazing colleagues, I would call them in seminary, like men, guys like you, that we got to like kick around ideas or thoughts or share different perspectives from scholars that we had read. And those were some of the richest parts of being in seminary. That was the thing for me that made it a place to reconstruct is that I got to figure out what I believed. Mm -hmm. And after taking apart so much of what had been handed to me, that was the richness of seminary for me was to get to figure out what is it that I believe and be exposed to lots of different ways of thinking about things. I do think one of the advantages of being a woman in a space like this, I'm so sorry, you guys, is that I have not been cultured and socialized to like need to have the answer or to need to be right. And I realize how much men are cultured and socialized in that direction. And so seminary was like such a gift for me because I just got to like imagine and think and pontificate and learn and be like, oh, my God, there's seven perspectives on that. That's amazing, actually, that <laughs> yes. you could have such different thoughts on this. It made the the text rich and come alive to not need to be right and to be exposed to multiple views. And so I had like incredible professors also that did that and that did that in, in the ways that they taught. And some of them that like intentionally reoriented dynamics in the classroom to actually solve and relieve and reorient some of the things I talked about that were that were difficult as well. So yeah. seminary was a great place for me to reconstruct and expose me to a lot. Yeah, that's, that's great. I'm glad you shared the positive side of it too. That's really encouraging. I think that is the way one should approach higher education of any form. <laughs> it's much better than trying to just own whatever the topic is and prove your view. Um, yeah. two, two quick follow-ups. I don't know how quick they'll be two follow-ups. Um, first, do you think that there is a normative way to reconstruct or to, or, or maybe even just to recover from deconstruction. Yeah, I think the binary black and white sort of cut and dry linear way that evangelicalism likes to approach things would love to try to prescribe something like that. And I do not think that it exists like a, a patterned oriented linear way to reconstruct. I actually don't even think that you can have the expectation that everyone will. Mm -hmm. Um. I think what pulls the thread that makes it unravel is so different for everyone. Like my experience is unique of what that sort of inciting incident was for me. Mm. I think it's different for everyone. And so I think the reconstructing or rebuilding, if people choose to engage that, is really unique and complex and dynamic and different mm. for everybody. Yeah. And then second thing is, correct me on this, but this has just been my experience. I know this is limited <laughs> and I know it can't just be this way. Um but of all the people I've spoken to, including on this podcast, who have reconstructed back into some form of faith, it doesn't even have to be Christianity, just some form of something they would consider faith, they, the way that it has happened has been cognitive. They have thought, mm. they have thought their way back into it. Oh, interesting. Um, I haven't, maybe I'm just wrong about this and I'm not recollecting off the top of my head, but I don't remember talking to anyone who had, for example just some sort of totally non-cognitive spiritual experience. Um, and that gave them a new kind of faith that they would, you know, consider religious. I'm sure that happens. It must happen. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, people who have deconstructed out of evangelicalism and then back into something else, it is still very much a, an intellectual thing. That I, then I missed tons of parts of my own story because that was a tremendous part of my own story, like mm, spiritual good. awakening. Tell me, tell me about that life. part. Um, so I shared even like that story 
in the midst of the willow stuff of experiencing God, like wrestling through um, how devastating this was and my anger towards God and my frustration and like, why is this and what's going to, and what, where the hell are you? And I had this experience of like, like I experienced God, like the voice or the presence of God and an image that went with it. That was very specific to where I was standing when I had this moment. And I would, I could tell you like a dozen other stories very similar to that of like the very real, tangible, visceral experience of God through that season that like, I would sound like a crazy person actually unpacking. (laughs) One of them, I like want to get a picture right now. There are like moments that marked me, that compelled me to even take that journey of trying to discover Jesus or go to seminary. And then as I put together a more indigenous more authentic, more visceral and real spirituality in my very humanity. Very little bit of my faith paradigm now is cognitive. Yeah. Like that was the hmm. that was the part I sucked at the most, mm-hmm. the seminary <laughs> reconstruction part. Planting in my garden and taking walks and decolonizing my mind and no longer running my life on dopamine and Mm -hmm. adrenaline and adrenal fatigue and fight or flight. And like, that was a part of my healing, I think coming out like, like physical healing my nervous system and changing Mm -hmm. the rhythms by which I live are Mm -hmm. a part of my spirituality. How I like, what did I eat? How I feel my body. I fast once a week and like experience God in dreams when I do like it's it was, it's been way more embodied mm. than cognitive. Love it. Which I guess is really fascinating as I answer your question, because seminary is the thing that I went to, because maybe that's the thing that gives my reconstructed faith some credibility. Oh, in interesting. Yeah. Now that is, we could unpack that some more if we wanted to. No, that's, that's, like, that's coming up in me as I'm telling you. Like, yeah. oh, that's probably why I went there. But that was the least transformational part of my journey. Okay. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. That's really helpful to contextualize. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder what it is about men and women that I feel like women have one of the many gifts that women have to give the church is an, a more embodied spirituality, mm. just way mm-hmm. more yeah, comfort in your own body, in your own self, in um, the intuition yes. inside that yes. women are given is special. Hmm. Hmm. That's fun. Okay, we could literally go in several different <laughs> directions. We're going to keep to the to our conversation. I'm excited to talk about the fun part, and here is the fun part. Tell us about the post-evangelical collective, Carrie. Yeah, um, I will try to give you the really short version, but essentially just in the last couple of years, I found myself having lots of conversations with pastors and denominational leaders and ministry leaders and Christians that were really wrestling with like what had been illuminated in evangelicalism. Many people trace it back to 2016. Yeah. People have different. Why? why? What happened happened in 2016? 2016? I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Or 2013 or uh, sorry. I, I talked to ministry, like many ministry leaders, pastors, denominational leaders that were struggling with the witness of the church in the West, like struggling with that vision and version and paradigm of evangelicalism. And my friend, Mike Goldsworthy was like leading some cohorts out on the West coast and just found a similar theme of like wrestlings and questions. And he said 
two and a half years ago, hey, what if we just had like a round table, you know, 20 people would come and we could talk about like a different way for the church or reimagining the church. And I had started a ministry called New Ground Network and did like coaching and consulting with some churches and pastors and denominations trying to reimagine the church. And when I did work with an evangelical organization, they paid me and I put the money towards like a non-traditional affirming church plant or experiment like this. So Mike was like, New Ground Network could fund this roundtable. We'll have 20 people come together. We'll talk about what this could look like, um, the future of the church. And we had 125 people like register to come. Like overnight, it went from this roundtable to like, okay, this is a conference. This is people wanting to explore. This is resonating with people in some way. That very first gathering we did in South Bend, Indiana. And I just describe it as it felt like a cold glass of water in the wilderness. Like that's what it felt like being there, meeting other people who were on a similar journey. Um, Maybe who didn't quite identify as like ex-evangelical, like didn't want to necessarily burn it down and empty the pews, Mm -hmm. but had left evangelicalism and were longing for something different. And and many like on a, a, what felt like a similar journey. And so we left that gathering just discerning, like we should try to, together faithfully cultivate or faithfully steward what the spirit is doing here. Like this is something special. Let's follow up with people. Let's connect them with some resources. Everybody's like, how do you do kids ministry in a way kids don't have to deconstruct their faith when they grow up? You know, there's like, there's a need. And so we're kind of building this web, connecting people in relationship, discerning together. Should we, what do we do here? We decided to do a second gathering last year in October in Denver, Colorado, and had 150, you know, artists, pastors, leaders, stakeholders in the church, some scholars. There's several sort of theologians that are poking around now, like, oh, this is really interesting and we want to contribute. And um, I was actually on with two of them this week. It's very exciting. But you can name drop. <laughs> what's that? I said you can name drop. It's okay. <laughs> well, Tom Ord was one of them. Have you guys had him on? Yeah, we have. Yep. A okay. couple times. It was super fun. Just talking about our gathering next year. Awesome. We're going to host another post-evangelical gathering. But I mean, more than just those gathering spaces, I think I tell that story just to frame like it's it's this growing contingent of people who have been disenchanted with evangelicalism, um, have many deconstructed, but there's like this special redemptive kind of thread of its people that still deeply deeply believe in the redemptive potential of the beloved community and like want to be a part of a different way of being the church, a different way of following Jesus. And so we're trying to connect people who are already doing it, like, so they're less alone and trying to resource and there's a need for resources in this space. I don't want to, I don't want to build an empire like evangelicalism, but I do hope we can sort of cultivate like an ecosystem of shared resources and spaces to learn from one another books on marriage and mutuality and you know there's there's like a need for a Jesus way that's different than what's out there right now so we imagine resourcing as well and then want to launch more post evangelical churches over time so it's this group of people that are kind of exploring a better way to follow Jesus so, a different way to follow Jesus maybe mm-hmm. better is not the word mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so how do you think of what the i mean collective is kind of a vague term but maybe that's by design or by necessity like is this pre-existing churches who just got together and were like we like this idea let's hang out is this new churches that you're planting is this yeah. a denomination <laughs> what 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 do you what is this oh it's such a good question i mean that's what's so wild and i mean it's like an interdenominational kind of movement of churches um 
the ones that exist, I think we have 50 or 60 on the website right now that are like have been in existence or have been launched this year. I think there might even be a new one that's like getting ready to launch that's listed on there. Some of them are mainline churches. Like I just heard from a Lutheran pastor who wants to be a part of the post-evangelical collective. We were, um, I guess this gets at what I was just talking about a bit. As we were sort of forming from this organic like collective of people meeting and gathering Last year, we decided to become sort of a formal 501c3. We turned New Ground Network into this 501c3. Um, we didn't want to create like new doctrinal statements that would hold us together because my indigenous spirituality does sort of point to like, you can tell what people believe by how they behave. And so we really wanted to shape this around like just some core values that mm-hmm. we want to covenant to live into together. So um it's been very broad, sort of the Christians and the leaders and the types of churches that those values resonate with. And I think that's really what we hope that it will be is this broad collection where we can learn from one another. And a lot of our mainline friends are like longing for what they would call spiritual revitalization. And I think they bring such rich history to this movement. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's like a reciprocity there uh, for how we could move forward together, learning from one another. And that's what they're asking us for. And that's what we're um, wanting to partner and like help cultivate together. So mainline churches, some independent churches that would like maybe were evangelical and have transitioned to be more post-evangelical. There's at least a handful that have planted sort of as post-evangelical churches. They planted with a different framework and a different value proposition, a different vision, you know, for what the church was intended to be. Yeah. So what are, I'm sure people could just go to the website and find out, but for people who are curious, what are some of those core values that you have in lieu of a doctrinal statement? Yeah, um, we have five that we just felt like, okay, if we could simmer this down to like people who want to embody these and be a part of this. And it's like Jesus centered, the life ministry teachings of Jesus are really what drive us, what we long to embody and to be, to practice together. Um, It's a, a holistic view of justice. So to understand that's part of the gospel is a holistic justice, both individually and collectively, that we would pursue holistic justice together. There's internal sort of liberation, but there's also collective liberation. That's a fruit of what holistic restorative, not retributive justice looks like. Not, all, I'm probably giving you bigger definitions than are on there. Jesus-centered, justice-oriented, um, fully affirming. So like anybody can be a part of these irrespective of ability, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity. Like there's nothing that holds somebody back from fully affirming, fully celebrated is really the goal of that. Um, faith spaces of mutuality and flourishing the fifth one that has it's shaped by like uh, deep and wide spiritual formation. So mm-hmm. wanting to pull from lots of different tr- Christian traditions, lots of different schools of thinking when it comes to spiritual formation. And even what we're trying to get at with that is like, even people hold the text differently in this space, like how they experience and um, sort of seek to apply the text. There's mm-hmm. a wide range. And the fifth one is a gracious posture. So it's really like Jesus-centered, justice-oriented, fully affirming faith spaces of mutual and fa- mutuality and flourishing with deep and wide spiritual formation. But we don't want to become the good news Christians, which is what evangelicals set out to do. We don't want to imagine that we hold the corner on the good news or the gospel, or even that it's up to us to decide who's in and who's out or other. 
the others. I mean, many of us were like kicked out of tables for what we believed or who we let in. And so then to keep other people out feels like it sort of violates that or recreates some of those systems and structures. So we really want to hold a gracious posture and not imagine that we have the the corner on the gospel or what the church should be. And I think there's like a humility, mm-hmm. I mean, grace, a gracious posture, but a humility that we hope to hold in this space. Yeah. Grace and humility are deeply connected, I think. Mm-hmm. I have a few more difficult questions. I don't know if I should go into those now or do you have any follow-ups? Um, I do, but why don't you ask your difficult question okay. first? <laughs> They're not that difficult. They're just be scared. a little more challenging. Um, but I know you have ready answers for them. So you're saying, oh, okay. <laughs> I know this is not the first time you've thought about any of these. So you said a little, so you've called this thing the post-evangelical collective, right? And then you just said there are some mainline people who are interested. And that's really intriguing to me. I was actually going to ask you, what is your relationship with mainline Christianity? Yeah. Um, and you said something earlier about maybe it won't always be that. Maybe it won't always be called that. So... Yeah. Is this thing a little bit reactionary? And if not, how do you avoid that? Or do you see it eventually morphing into something else? Yeah. I think the morph part is a part of what we really want to hold on to. Like, this isn't just evangelicalism that's become affirming and talking about justice. Like, we want to continue to evolve. I do think that's a part of, like, the ethos of what we want to hold on to. Could it be reactionary? Certainly. And it might be. I I do think it is a response. I hope it's not a reaction. I hope it's a group of people that have done a little bit deeper excavating to move out of fight or flight sort of reactivity and are moving into how do we actually respond and not even try to critique. I think the best critique of the old is to just reimagine and build the new and let that naturally critique the old. Like Mm -hmm. I don't actually want to sit around and get in the ring with evangelicals and try to call them out or tell them that they're wrong. I just want to reimagine a different way that actually that's a more durable, hope filled way that doesn't spiritual bypass spiritually bypass like reality. Yeah. And let that speak for itself. So, but it, but it might be reactionary. Yeah. I hope that it's more positioned as a response or an invitation, even yeah. to some redemption and restoration. There, I don't think the name will stick forever. Like I think we'll change the name, and it won't be post-evangelical forever. What's interesting is we've had some mainline folks say like, oh, I was never, I never called myself an evangelical, but I can see all the ways evangelicalism has shaped mainline mm-hmm. churches, mm-hmm. just the like system and structure and kind of paradigm. I'm so grateful for the ways that it hasn't, you know, the liturgy and the ancient roots and that like, there's a lot that evangelicalism didn't touch or, or taint maybe. And I'm glad that those parts we still get to benefit from. The thing that's interesting is I also have some mainline friends who will say I was never evangelical and I don't know if I fit. I don't know if I belong in this. And I'm like, cool, cool. You decide, like, we're not going to try to convince you, but where that language has been the most interesting is to the watching world. Like I was, I was a pastor and pushing my kid on the swing at the playground at a school and the dad, you know, next to me is like chatting it up. And I said, I was a pastor and he was like, wait, like an evangelical pastor. (laughs) And this is, you know, this is in like probably six or eight months. This is in the last year, but he, in his mind, he's thinking of what happened at the Capitol. And he's like, are you one of those people? Like to the Mm -hmm. watching world, that's not a part of this culture. Evangelical Christian is like, that carries a lot of connotation. And so it's actually been like a wild, interesting thing that to be able to say post-evangelical actually resonates with people and sort of causes them to lean in like, oh, so you're a Christian, but you're not that. Tell me more. 
it won't do that forever, but right now the name accomplishes something. And the, the, what what I love about this is just our story. Not we never set out to start something. Yeah, something started, and we felt like we were supposed to steward it. And so we never sat around and were like, "What should we name this organization?" It was like, "Well, everybody's mm-hmm. calling it Post Evangelical because that's what it is." So like, we should probably call it that at least for the first, at least for what we're doing now. So. I don't know how much runway we'll get out of mm-hmm. it, but right now it's descriptive and it resonates and it like n- nobody chose it. It was given sure. to us, I guess. That's great. I, and I should maybe say I have no issue with the response that yes, it is reactive and some things need to be reacted to publicly. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah. The, but totally I, and okay I think only the, um, I hope I didn't sound defensive in my answer. No, not I, at all. No. I think only like at some point in time, we'll look back and know, was it yeah. reactionary? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and was it an important and valuable reaction? Um, okay, difficult question number two. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so besides you, who are the other people leading this collective, and what should lead the average deconstructing post-evangelical Christian to trust you guys more than they trust the religious leaders that they've been harmed by? Yeah. The first question is very easy. Um, It's like, it's such a broad collective of people. Um, The kind of co-founders, I guess, would be myself, Kevin Ha, uh, Zach Lambert, and Mike Goldsworthy, alongside Amy McCall, and Sean Palmer, and Jason Miller, and Justin Morgan, and Michael Hidalgo, and um, Gail Song Bantam, and like this whole kind of group of people that were just a part of the evolution of early cohorts, the first gathering, the second gathering, somewhere along the way, David Gushy, who is a Christian ethicist, like heard about what was happening and wanted to be a part. When we formalized and became a 501c3, we had transitioned New Ground Network and like that board over to this new organization and a new board. Those Some of those names I named became the board members of like the fiduciary responsibility. But we felt like in this space, more than just what we do, how we do it really matters. And we want to be held accountable to the how as much as the what. And so we put together what we call a wisdom board, like that are also helping to walk with us. So they don't hold the fiduciary, like working day in and day out, but they're walking with us and guiding us. And that's like a really diverse group of people. Dr. Angela Parker, who wrote a book called If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Brilliant liberationist kind of theologian, teaches at Mercer Seminary. Um, Dr. Sally Gary, who runs an organization called Centerpiece, helping um, churches think through and families think through how to be more loving and inclusive and celebratory of our queer siblings. Um, Dr. Peter Choi, who runs a, an organization called the Center for Peace and Justice and is doing really brilliant sort of engaging, you know, holistic justice work. Jonathan Merritt, who is kind of a writer and thinker and um, imaginative contributor to what it is that we're doing. And then Dr. David Gushy, who is an ethicist, like Christian ethicist, who's paid a great cost to kind of become post-evangelical himself. Mm-hmm. I would say all of these individuals have, but that's like a, a wisdom board in addition to the working board, all of these people. And then this whole other circle of people like Randy and others who are kind of leading like regional areas of post-evangelical churches. And we've got like some spiritual directors and some leadership coaches and like all kinds of this, like, ecosystem that's emerging like a constellation of people that I would say are also helping to lead what this is and what this becomes. The second part of that question of why would people trust us or this? Um, I don't know that they would. I don't know that they should. 
Um, I think we have attempted to sort of decolonize our minds and imaginations about what it is that we're trying to do and how, but I know that we will certainly mess up. And I recognize we have been formed by a system that will bring some of those pitfalls in. I hope we handle it better when we screw up. We're trying to figure out like just functionally, how do we do finances different? So they're done in a more generative way um, and a more transparent way. You know, like, I think that's one of the things that's interesting too, is right now, nobody has ever taken a salary from the post-evangelical collective or from New Ground Network that got turned into it. So you could like watch how money has been handled. And so I think we're trying to reorient some of the ways that we saw harm be done in significant ways as we sort of flesh out this organization. I told Kevin and Mike and Zach when they asked me to be the executive director, as long as they didn't expect that this was going to look sort of capitalistic up into the right success oriented like patriarchal hierarchical leadership, like then I, I would say yes, if they're open to that, but that's not what I'm interested in leading or running or doing. And they were like, great, that's why we want you to do this. And so I have just felt a ton of empowerment to like faithfully cultivate what's here and do that collaboratively with a lot of people. We probably could have planted 10 or 12 more churches this year if we had not been, um, so committed to our values, but we've heard from people that want to plant a post-evangelical church. And it's like, um, this is amazing that you align with these and you feel resonance with them. But if you haven't ever like submitted to a person of color or worked for a woman or engaged queer folks on your leadership team, or like it's possible without the practice of that, you could actually do harm and not embody these values. So what are the immersive experiences we can help you have or go through or the leaders we could have you sit under or be formed by or that could maybe help you actually embody these values if you wait so we've said like we've said no in times that it would have been tempting to say yes just to like go up into the right or improve our numbers or um i do feel like i'm just like listing off like here are some things that i think make us trustworthy Mm -hmm. (laughs) but Mm -hmm. um I recognize that anyone in a position of like authority and particularly pastoral authority is operating at a significant deficit right now, probably as they should be because Mm -hmm. of the ways that we've seen authority and power held in the world. And I think there's so much being illuminated in the world right now about the underside of power and about how those systems and hierarchies and patriarchy and white supremacy and those sorts of things have led us to this moment. I think people are really hungry for a different way. I'm not saying we have that or are doing that, but we're trying to orient in a different way because we've seen the toxicity of those types of systems and structures. And we're we're going to fumble through it and figure it out as we go. Yeah. And let me, let me fill in that question a little bit from a, a person who was on the outside. We we're very interested in now. I'm like, I want to be on the inside of that, of that tribe, of that circle. I mean, our church felt compelled our church elders felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to become an inclusive and affirming church for um, queer people. And that was a long drawn out process with lots of fear and trembling, lots of searching the scriptures, lots of prayer, lots of consulting elders and people full of wisdom beyond, you know, our capacity and, and, and what we had in and within us. And um, we did it. And church network that we were part of, the 24-7 prayer network, which is a global network of prayer and church network. Um, Long story short, very long story short, kicked us out and basically like 
verbatim told us, if you are an affirming church, you can be friends of 24-7 prayer, not family. And this is a church network in a, in a, a global network that talks about family an awful lot. And so I don't have to tell you how painful that was to hear. You can be friends, not family, especially with how many queer people hear that over and over again in church spaces. So that sent us off in a disorienting journey of trying to figure out who's our people and who are we and um, feeling completely alone, really. And especially in a city like Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milwaukee, you know, leans blue and is kind of a part of the Rust Belt Union City, all of that. But it's very conservative, culturally and and socially and we're kind of the only show in town as far as like churches that are i would say gospel-centered jesus-centered and affirming and inclusive and i felt like i was on an island and our elders and our leaders felt like we were an island and then i saw zach post something about that gathering in denver last you know not last october two octobers ago and i reached out to him i was like dude you got to tell me more and he told me more and i found myself at a zoom and met you for the first time and then started actually meeting real people sat down and had dinner with david gushy and um was so impressed by the graciousness by the by the love exchanged by the reception and invitation given by the listening heart and spirit by the camaraderie that i found there and the humility there's something when somebody goes through being evicted out of a movement that they've kind of given their whole life to. I'm talking about you, Carrie. I'm talking about a David Gushy. I'm talking about many others within this church network who've lost, almost lost everything or had, did lose everything and have to build it back. When you have that kind of, that person that's been through that kind of thing, who's still able to be generous, kind, uh, listens, is humble, genuinely wants to hear your story and genuinely wants to just receive more of you. That to me, Brian McLaren is another one of these people who he's been through the ringer of being on the heretic watch list and told all sorts of terrible things. And he's the most kind, compassionate man I've probably ever met. That to me has credibility. So that's why I trust the post-evangelical collective because of people like Carrie and David and Zach and Mike and many others who have been through the ringer of religion and have come out softer, kinder, gentler, more like Jesus. And I know that there's tons of church leaders, there's tons of people in churches who feel isolated and alone just like I did, just like our church did. And that's why I'm so excited for the Post-Evangelical Collective. That's why I was so excited to have you on, Carrie, is to share you and to share this movement that's just in the infant stages. Like, this is going to be fun to be able to reflect back and maybe have you on in a couple of years and say, look what Jesus did, right? Um, but to have a group of people like that as well who've been chewed up and spit out by the church and still say, I love Jesus, and still say, I'm not giving up on this idea of the church. Like, I'm welling up with tears right now because it's so beautiful to me. Um, so yeah. there's my answer of why we should trust them. <laughs> yep. And that, like I say, there's so many church leaders and church people who are desperate for a group of people to identify with, to listen, to be heard by, and to just sit with. There was I had this experience where I went, I actually like went to, but also helped host the gathering in Chicago in this last August. And um, it was a beautiful experience, but when you're hosting something, you got to be on and we got to make sure that we're on time and make sure that what all the, all the things. And we finished our time with uh, the Eucharist. 
and it was a covenant church we were in. The pastor named Peter walked us through the liturgy of the covenant church that we were at, and it just struck me. It just immediately invi- invited me into the Lord's table in this beautiful way. And But that was it. Nothing special, nothing crazy, whatever. But I got into line, and this is after being evicted and kicked out of a church network before this. But I got into line, and I'm standing in line with these people who I just met, but who fe- are already feeling like trusted friends and who have similar stories. And we've, you know, there's been tears shed in the day. And all of a sudden, I just started weeping. Like, nothing nothing planned no like emotional moment i just started crying and i think it was both the power of and beauty of the eucharist and the lord's table and the invitation to it and the profound experience of standing in line with people who you kind of identify with you don't know but you're choosing to be family and friends with these people because of jesus and because of the grace and love that we've been given and now you you're given it by these people and that confluence all just led to me just losing it right in the middle of everybody. Um, It's a needed, there are other church networks who are doing similar things and I would like praise the Lord for it. And I hope there's more and more, honestly, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you what's happening with the post evangelical collective is super timely, really important. And I'm so excited to see what it becomes in humility, hopefully. So there's my commercial, Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, I was just, say like what do you even add to that yeah dr gushy commented he joined us at the second gathering and um like canceled his international like moved his family international vacation to come be there like it was a big deal for him to want to and he said the thing that struck him and made him want to be a part of this is um just how like how redemptive the spirit feels in the room Mm-hmm. And that's just how I would describe it. Like the glass of water in the wilderness at the first gathering and the second gathering. I feel like when you walk through the day, you're lucky to interact with like one or two people who's like actually alive. They're not like sleepwalking through their life and through their day and like on their phone or like hurried or rushed, like who will like be there and be present with you. And I think there's something that happens when you are shattered, like when you are broken open and you choose to wake up to life and to not just go back to whatever was lowly. Like you can't unsee mm-hmm. and you you don't want to sleepwalk and live disconnected from yourself and the people around you. Like something happens. And I feel like being in Denver and being in Chicago, it's like being in a room full of people who are like bright eyed and present and have been broken open and have picked up the pieces and allowed Jesus to heal something. And I think whether you've been hurt by the church or whether you were hurt by your family of origin or whether you were born into, like, I think whatever kind of pain, whether you got divorced or struggled with addiction or lost a baby, like any sort of, I think how we respond to pain either opens us up or shuts us down. Mm -hmm. And it either becomes, if you can lean into healing and I think Jesus is a part of this and I'm still not sure what I think about like, the physiological part and the spiritual part, because I do think they're very connected. But when we lean in to healing, our wounds become medicine. And when we don't, they become poison. And I think this is like a group of people that have leaned in and are experiencing healing and want to like be a part of ushering that sort of healing into the world. And I think that's the call of the gospel is to partner with Jesus in the redemption and the restoration of all things. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that's our vocation when we follow Jesus. And you can't be a part of that redemptive healing work if you have not experienced it. And so I think there's something really beautiful that we're, I don't think you like arrive and are healed. And it's like, now I get to be this like wonderful healer. 
I think it's a way of living, like to pursue wholehearted healing sort of oriented living. And I, I think that's like a part of the special thing that's been happening in the spaces. It's people that are reimagining that the good news is that we can have life to the full now yeah. that Jesus wants to offer that healing and invite us into healing the world. Yeah. So good. Thank you so much, Carrie Lattisor from the Post Evangelical Collective. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We've had a great time talking. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for listening to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you're enjoying these conversations. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person. Also, please rate and review the show in Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode. If anything we said pissed you off, or if you just have a question you'd like us to answer, send us an email at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. Find us on social media at, at Podcast, and find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next time. Cheers.